Well, good morning, Trinity family. It is good to be together this morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Ryan North, and I've had the opportunity to serve as a student ministry intern here at Trinity. If you would, please join me in opening your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 14, where we find the content for today's sermon, Gospel Exhortations Against Temptations. And we're picking up right where we left off last week, in verse 3 where Paul is continuing his exhortation for saints as citizens of the new creation to avoid the evil practices of the world. He does so by considering, on one hand, what is fitting, and on the other, what is not. On one hand, what is light, and what is dark. The focus is on how God's people ought to live in this world and amongst one another. And he urges us to flee the sinful world's practices, consisting of sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. He says those things have no place in the life of a believer. And he wants us to heed that warning, to heed it, to not become partners joining with the unbeliever in sin. And lastly, he explains how we were at all, all at one point in darkness, but now are light in the Lord. And as such, we should walk as children of light. The main idea for the sermon is that we should flee the deeds of darkness and walk as children of light. We should flee the deeds of darkness and walk as children of light. So with that in mind, please read with me Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 14. It says this, But sexual immorality and in all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today and this opportunity for us to gather together, to hear from you through your word. And Lord, I pray that as we tackle a difficult topic, that you would soften our hearts, that we'd be receptive to it, And Lord, ultimately, that you would be glorified in it all. God, remind us of the hope we have in you that even when we're tempted to pursue the pleasures of this world, the pleasures of darkness, that we are indeed children of light and can live as such. God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think there's no point in denying the fact that our passage today is a difficult one in its nature. As Paul is exhorting us to flee the sinful world's practices, and specifically within the realm of sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, which he says are not to be named among the saints. 
It's one we find awkward or uncomfortable to talk about. But one he explains is so necessary given the world we live in. His call is a call for us to be transformed by the light of Christ and to run from the sins which categorize this world like we'd run from a bear whose cub we got too near. Swiftly, without turning back, we flee the youthful passions of our flesh as we look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This adaptation from a sermon says it well. The Christian runs from spiritual danger and after spiritual good, both to flee from the one in order to escape it and to pursue the other in order to attain it. This double duty of Christians, both negative and positive, is the consistent reiterated teaching of Scripture. Thus, we are to deny ourselves and to follow Christ. We are to put off what belongs to our old self and to put on what belongs to our new life. We are to put to death our earthly members and set our minds on heavenly things. We are to crucify the flesh and to walk in the spirit. It's the ruthless rejection of the one in combination with the relentless pursuit of the other, which scripture enjoins upon us as a secret of holiness, only so we can be fit for the master's use. In this battle we have against sin, we do not merely just run from it, but we do so as we run towards Christ, our Lord and Savior. And as we dive into the text today, I want to make something clear about what Paul is not saying and what he is saying. Paul's not telling us that we need to to feel guilt and shame for all those things that have been done in the past that have been forgiven in Christ. Because all who are in Christ and have repented of their sins have been forgiven. It is gone. It is remembered no more. Rather, Paul is saying that we as new creations should run from sins like these because they are not who we are anymore. We've been transformed by the light out of darkness and ought to live our lives walking as children of light. Therefore, this call is a call for us to flee those sins, to flee the deeds of darkness and to walk as children of light. And it's a call for us to put off those sins, to repent and to run to Jesus. With that being said, let's jump into verses 3 through 7, where we're encouraged to flee the sinful world's practices. Flee the sinful world's practices. Paul introduces us to this call to flee the sinful world's practices by listing three vices, which we don't have to go far in this world to find. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. And this list of sins is one that is far from exhaustive. But Paul's intent is to show us the deep-rooted sins which characterize any group of people in this fallen world. Yet the saints are not supposed to be just any group of people. For we were chosen out of this world to be holy and blameless. And when Paul is talking about sexual immorality and impurity, he also does so in a general sense, a broad sense. Perhaps as a way to cover a host of sins which fall within the category of sexual immorality and impurity. The sins we often think of as pornography and sex outside of marriage and lust and prostitution and anything that is sexually arousing outside of the marriage covenant. The questions we should be asking ourselves when discerning whether something is sinful. It's not merely, is it wrong? But also, does it glorify God? See, Paul's intent for us in hearing this is not to give us a boundary which we push up as close to as we can without getting burned. No, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, we are to flee from sexual immorality. We don't stand there and hope we don't give in. We don't stand there and hope we will enough, uh, get enough willpower to, to prevent it. We flee from sexual immorality. 
Because every other person of sin, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Therefore, what is fitting for the saints is that such sins which Paul has just listed must not even be named at or hinted at among us. So when we're faced with sexual temptation in our life, whatever that may be, we want to run like Joseph from Potiphar's wife without turning back. And yes, it may seem extreme to run from your phone or from your computer physically when you're tempted to look at things you shouldn't. But do it. It's worth it. Yes, it may seem extreme to run out of the bedroom and into the street, but do it. It's worth it. And it may seem extreme to go to a family-friendly beach with your friends when they want to go to the popular one. But it's worth it. Because Paul goes on to say in verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. God deals harshly with those who engage willfully and unrepentedly in those sins. Therefore, we need to deal harshly with those sins in our lives. The third vice which Paul lists in this first list is covetousness. And in the way he uses it, Paul is conveying that this is a greed of wealth, uh, which would replace God in the lives of believers. That we'd be more concerned with this strong desire to acquire and to keep for ourselves more and more money and possessions, more and more comfort. Because we trust and love and obey wealth more than God. It's this culture of greed which causes the working poor to steal from the rich and the rich to refuse to give to the poor that Paul says is unfitting for the people of God. Because covetousness is the worship of the creation rather than the creator, which is treason against the king of kings and the lord of lords. John says about the love of the world in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And Paul says these things in an emphatic way that within the people of God, a culture should prevail that is utterly different from the culture characterized by its hardness of heart, its sensuality, and its greed. And perhaps the way that Paul emphasizes these, that God's people should be in a different culture, prompts him to list three more vices, which primarily deal with speech and every one of them with sexual connotations. And we find them in verse 4. He says, filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking must again not be present in the life of a believer. Rather, thanksgiving. The word we translate as filthiness or obscene talk generally refers to ugliness. And given the context, it's this singing about or talking about ugly sexual behavior in the form of entertainment. How much of the music we listen to, how many of the movies or TV shows we watch, how many of the jokes that we tell or laugh at or the conversations at work and school we engage in that are characterized by this filthiness and obscenity? And he continues to bring up foolish talk, which is more this kind of nonsensical babbling which emerges where drunkenness and sexual immorality are present. And lastly, he includes crude joking, which, again, given the context of improper sexual behavior, refers to the misuse of an otherwise attractive quality, quick-witted, clever humor employed in a way that is malicious and sexually vulgar. As Christians, we should not be characterized by these things. 
rather by thanksgiving. When Paul brings up thanksgiving, it's always pointed towards God. Whether in private prayer or in worship, it's pointed towards God. This is in contrast to the types of speeches he has just listed. We should replace our self-indulgent, our self-promoting and immoral speech with speech of thanksgiving towards God as is fitting among the saints. But why? Why is it so important that we flee these vices in our lives? Because Paul has made it clear in verses 3 and 4 that we must flee from these things. That it is not fitting for the people of God. And in verse 5, which we brought up earlier, he gives us the reason. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This verse forms Paul's conclusion of these first few verses. Where he is explaining that the people of God, uh, people who are characterized by the deeds of darkness, that is the sexually immoral, the impure, and the covetous, have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And we must be careful here because Paul's not insinuating that the true believer can lose his or her salvation. Because we know according to Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit has saved, sealed the, the believer, the true believer, and seated with him at the king at the right hand of God. The true believer's salvation is irrevocable. But because of that, we should be careful how we live. Those who have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God should not engage in the kind of acts and conduct which, which characterizes the unbeliever who has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Because again, those who willfully give themselves to these sins have no share in the kingdom of Christ and God. This warning is one we must heed, because Paul goes on in verses 6 and 7, saying, let no one deceive you with empty words. He's implying that there's false teaching about the sexually immoral conduct, which conveys that there's no consequences for those who engage in it. We must be wary and alert, lest we be led astray. We can always find someone who will teach us what we want to hear, who will tell us what our flesh desires is good. But we must be wary. We must cling to the words of Scripture so as to not be led astray. Paul is insisting that God's wrath is coming on those who engage willfully, unrepentedly in the deeds of darkness, the sexually immoral, impure, and covetous. The sons of disobedience he mentions at the end of verse 6 are not believers who struggle against these sins. They're not believers who every now and again fail, but are those who are dead in their transgressions, those who are dead in their sins and under the influence of the earth, the world, the flesh, and the devil, as Ephesians 2 tells us. And it's because God's wrath is coming on the disobedient that, God, or that Paul is calling us to not become sharers with them. And his point here is that fully participating in the worldview and the conduct of the unbelievers in matters of sex and money is not compatible within the people of God. In verse 8, it marks a transition in the passage. He adds another reason why we should not participate in the sins of the sexually immoral and greedy beyond God's wrath coming on them. He says we should not participate in those sins because it is out of step with who we have become in Christ. He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This theme of light and darkness 
is sometimes used as a metaphor for the holiness of God and his people over against the evils of the world. And Paul is not merely saying that we were once in darkness, that we once did dark deeds, did evil things, that we were entirely darkness. Our whole existence was darkness, as Ephesians 2, 2 tells us. But that was until, out of grace and mercy, God saved us and made us light. And to reiterate what Paul has been telling us, we're not light because we do deeds of light. Rather, we're light because God has called us out of darkness and into light and into union with Christ, where we have been regenerated through the Holy Spirit to do good works because of God. And in verse 9, he gives us a kind of preview of what walking as children of light looks like. He says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. You see, just like how a fruit of a plant shares the same nature of that plant, so should the fruit we produce be in step with who we have become in Christ. And as Paul is connecting light with fruit, we can draw on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, where Paul says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these are found in all that is good and right and true. Standing in complete contrast with the vices which Paul has previously listed. The point he's getting at is to show us what kind of characteristics should define and govern our lives as opposed to the characteristics that we flee from. For our lives are marked as followers of Christ and we must seek what is good and right and true and ultimately what is pleasing to the Lord. But there's discernment required in order to know what is pleasing to the Lord. And in verse 10, Paul again picks up his main thought after giving us a society of what walking as children of light looks like. And discerning what is good and right and true and therefore pleasing to the Lord is not an easy task to do. It requires great wisdom to do well. Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The idea of discernment is to to test and to prove something, to see its genuineness or its character. And discernment of this type is at the very heart of biblical wisdom. Paul is showing us how our spiritual worship is pursuing holiness as we present our bodies as living sacrifices, which are holy and acceptable to God. And in similar thought to this passage in Ephesians, here in Romans, Paul is exhorting us to not be conformed to this world. That is, to not join with it in sin. We are to not look like the world. Rather, our minds have been transformed by Christ. And we can discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And the way we do that as believers, as we look for what is good and right and true, is by knowing God's word. Within which we find God's will for our lives. And there's no surer way for us to exercise discernment in this life than knowing God's word. And I know that it's not a step-by-step guide for every situation we have, every decision we have to make or action we take. It's not going to tell us which school we have to go to, what job to take, who to marry. But the Bible does inform every decision we have in life, including those in a meaningful way. 
Therefore, we must search the scriptures in order to discern what is good and right and true. And therefore, ultimately, what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul now returns in verse 11 to his, his call for us to not become partakers in the world. To not become partakers with the sons of disobedience. And he expands upon what he means here. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Again, Paul is reiterating how important it is for the saints to not partake in the unfruitful works of darkness. This kind of partaking in he's talking about, it's not just the actions which are being done, but also the lifestyle which is being lived surrounding it. It's this affirmation of the deeds and the deeds being done, the joining in arms with them that Paul is saying is unfitting for the people of God. And not only are we to flee from the deeds marked by greed and sexual immorality, which are not fitting within the community of God's people, because they stand in complete contrast to the way of life which characterizes the saints because of our union with Christ. This exposing the works of darkness is not entirely about evangelism, though that's a large part of it. Rather, given how Paul has been talking about what is fitting for and what is not fitting for the people of God, the church, we should see part of its purpose is the edification of the church. Those deeds which we seek to reveal for what they are as sin should remind us that we are no longer who we are, that that way of life is no longer fitting for God's people. Rather, living as light, and we should be characterized by our love for God and our love for others. The idea of exposing these unfruitful works is not for us to to point a finger of condemnation at those who engage in them. Rather, it's a sort of revealing of the heart, of his or her heart, who engage in them, that leads to repentance and worship of God. It leads to the positive result of confession and belief. Our job as Christians is not to go around this world seeking out areas where we can point out all the bad things being done. It's not finding these evil deeds and making posts about it or having conversation gossiping about it. It's not judging our friends who do engage in these because we want to come with the disposition of, I want you as my brother and sister. I want you to join me in the light. I don't want you to be shamed or condemned, but I want you to see that life with Christ is better. This is more in line with the gospel. And I think the reason Paul gives us for not participating in the unfruitful works of darkness is that they are so evil. He says, for it is shameful even to speak of those things that they do in secret. The acts which Paul describes here are shameful to mention for the same reason that those who do them try to hide them. And we must remember that as we seek to expose the deeds of darkness done by those in darkness, it's important to not turn it into an opportunity for gossip and slander, for that also would not be fitting for the people of God. The reason Paul gives us for exposing the unfruitful works of darkness is that everything the light exposes becomes visible. And if we remember back to verse 8, Paul reminds us that we were once darkness, but now are light in the Lord. And if we keep with that illustration, we as children of light make known the truth about sin and God shines in their lives, knowledge about him. And this beautiful picture of like repentance and belief, those in darkness become children of light. And Paul ends this passage with a quotation which seems to show a, a preacher of the gospel calling the unbeliever, who we see pictured as asleep and dead, to a resurrected life in which the light of Christ will shine on him or her forever. 
first two lines of it, bring to mind Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, where he describes us as having been dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, at which point Christ made us alive, seated us with him in the heavenly places. And in the last line, the third one, he calls five, chapter 5, verse 8, which we just read. But we remember being Remember the light and dark imagery, which described us as moving from our prior existence, uh, being in darkness, to being made light. This, again, is another beautiful picture functioning as a conclusion to these verses. And as this passage is coming to a close, we see that Paul has accomplished in the second half what he intended to. First, that we're given a reason, in addition to experiencing God's wrath, for why we flee these deeds. He's demonstrated that partaking in the deeds of darkness is entirely incompatible with our new creation or our new um, existence as light. We've been made new. We've been given the ability to discern what is pleasing to God in all areas of our lives. And therefore, what we say, what we do, what we think ought to be characterized by what is good and right and true. And secondly, we're to seek transformation for those whose lives are dominated by the darkness and the shameful evil acts within. We do this by exposing or revealing sin, by shining the light of the gospel into their lives and onto those acts. For it's when people hear the gospel and the Spirit works in their heart that they are awakened to the reality of their sinful conditions. And it's then when Christ shines on them, and they too become children of light. Paul's call for us in verses 3 through 14 in this passage to flee the deeds of darkness. To walk as children of light is not one which is easy. And I know surrounding those particular sins, which Paul has listed, there's much guilt and shame. There's shame for things we've done. Shame for things done to us. Shame for things we're struggling with. But this shame is not something we're meant to bear forever. For those who are in Christ, that shame has an end which is found in Jesus Christ. For on that cross, Jesus bore the full weight of our guilt, the full weight of our crushing shame. And to believe in Jesus is to trust in the one who was shamed for us on the cross, the one who doesn't despise our weakness and doesn't despise our brokenness. And even more incredible than that, Jesus does not turn away from us when we feel broken, when we feel unlovable, when we feel fragile or self-condemned. Jesus has covered the entirety of our guilt and our shame. in our sin, with the depths of his grace. I praise God for such mercy and kindness and love and compassion, which we are so undeserving of. And what's our cost? Nothing but faith and repentance. This call to live as children of light that Paul gives is a comprehensive one, where our whole lives fall under God's claim. We're to love him with all our hearts, with all our minds, our soul, our strength, and thought, word, and deed. Jesus clearly calls all of his followers to a way of life that is fitting for God's people. To flee a life that encompasses darkness, which we once were. And for those struggling with shame, I encourage you, look to Jesus who bore it all. Who has made you a child of light. You are no longer darkness, but are light in the Lord. And those currently struggling to fight these deeds of darkness, take hope that by Christ's power you can overcome it. For we are not bound to sin forever because we are light in the Lord.
Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace and your mercy, which has brought us from death to life, which has put sin and shame and guilt to death. God, as we go forwards from today, I pray you'd convict us of our sin. Remind us who we are in you, that we are light in the Lord and can live as such. God, we love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.